I've been thinking about code reviews lately. I've been... Uh, I haven't done many code reviews, really. I just... just uh, had to... Okay, like this. So... In the process to get code accepted and then merged into the code tree at uh, the place I'm working right now. One important part is to have at least one other person say, yes, this is good code. And one of the persons who uh, need to say yes must be a senior person who really knows the project. Okay. So, uh, mostly I've been seeing this as this is nice bureaucracy. People, uh, it makes people feel good. Uh, and um, uh, in this case, uh, in, on, in this place, we don't find too many bugs doing this. There are some people who are really good at code reviewing who can say things like, but what happens if you replace that part of the code with this part? It should make it shorter while preserving the semantics. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, when I was doing my master thesis, me and my master thesis partner, we did lots of code review of each other's code. So we could say, okay, now I actually understand what your code does. Or we could say, what does this code do really? It's really pretty, but I have no idea what it does. Please explain. So, but then we were working basically we were sitting shoulder to shoulder yeah. so while now we're working remotely and many of my colleagues are in shanghai or in hungary or so so i think what i want to to talk to you about is what benefits do you see from code review what have you seen because you have been the senior guy for quite some time now, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I know there are a lot of companies that will not let code into the code base without review. And I absolutely understand why that, why that like instinctually makes sense, intuitively makes sense. Like, okay, but if we have someone look this over, uh, that will catch bugs, right? Uh, it's very rare, though, that I see uh, code review actually catch bugs. What I most often see it do is mostly enforce style, which can be a good reason to do it. Or more importantly, the best parts of code review that have, in my experience, and the most common reason I do code review is teaching and learning knowledge sharing between colleagues it's like okay it's important that someone else than me understands what this code does because we're introducing it into the code base and uh, i might not be the one maintaining it or it might it might cause a lot of changes to in how you experience the system or like uh, actually change how something behaves and if you're the only one who knows about it. When it catches fire, you're the only one who can explain it. Uh, and it will be a mystery to everyone else. So there are values there, but I don't think they're necessarily, necessarily intrinsic to 
reviewing the code in that sense. Someone could just as well explain like, okay, this code does this and will change the, the behavior of the system in these ways. What I have done uh, most when code reviewing myself has been sitting down with someone who's less experienced uh, and is trying to fix something or change something. They take a first stab at it. They send me like a pull request or a branch. I take a look at it and, and see like, okay, uh, maybe this part makes it clear that you haven't fully grasped how we do things like this or that there are simpler tools. Like if you're learning a front-end JavaScript framework and you don't actually know that there are uh, there's tooling for managing paths and routing in it, you might be uh, tempted to use the JavaScript defaults um, or the, like the normal manipulation of URLs and stuff. And that wouldn't be ideal if there are things that hook into, uh, into that from the framework. So you might just want to, uh, like, then it's a, a matter of educating people on like, no, we actually do this in this way, or you actually have these facilities, uh, which you should be using. Um, so like for on the boarding, I think code review is, is quite good, just like pairing is, and those sort of achieve the same thing, but in different <laughs> execution modes. <laughs> it's like one is synchronous and one is asynchronous. And I think pairing is vastly more effective, uh, but also significantly more demanding. Uh, what I've also seen is a lot of nitpicking, like no, no indentation, no, no. Uh, we name things in this order here. Uh, no, no, uh, your automatic uh, formatter didn't save, didn't update this on save, so uh, better fix that. Things that absolutely do not matter for the code base and could just be fixed by a later, later commit. And like for some people, it's very important that that stuff doesn't get into the code base at all. And for some people, it isn't. I tend to lean toward not that important. Yeah. I think I think it's important uh, for me, but then I'm the person who sets up the automatic uh, code linters and so on in the continuous integration part. So uh, then the code doesn't even reach code review uh, because, uh, well, PyLint or whatever tool you prefer. Yeah, exactly. That's something that the machine can check. Yeah. And uh, when I receive a code review that someone else has done, uh, I can... Uh, for some reason, I get quite upset when someone says your style is wrong. But when a machine says that, it's cool. No worries at all. Uh, so I prefer to get that feedback from a machine and uh, let the more substantial, uh, high-level thinking come from people. Yeah, um, I'm pretty much the same there. Because when... When a person is nit picking nits from your code and being like, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't sit right or this doesn't go, uh, go well, that tends to be like a lot of small things, which is like death by a thousand cuts. 
Yep. While if what they do is look through your code and be like, hmm, I feel like this could be put more clearly or like this part feels feels unclear to me uh, and it could probably benefit from being more explicit. Like that's that's useful, actionable advice. Whereas if someone is saying, oh, there's a space at the end of this line, it's like, okay, yeah. Why did you spend time seeing that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I also tend to have automatic formatters and different kinds of linters run in CI or run or run them occasionally if i'm if i'm the one doing most of the coding on a project like if it's my own project and i sometimes have people in it then i might not set up ci and in that case i would just i would just run it manually when i realized that i've screwed it up too much but (laughs) automatic formatting i have on on save generally it's so good i have worked in projects where where the editor was finicky or and i think once i had an outdated rule set for how the formatter was supposed to behave which led oh, to no. consistent issues where i wasn't doing the right thing because <laughs> yeah uh, so so yeah i i don't think that's useful use of anyone's time it's like okay yeah maybe spelling errors uh, because usually linters can't catch that unless you've made a spelling error that's that makes code invalid yeah i know spelling errors in code can definitely be confusing oh yes and code comments in code that are so badly written that they can't be understood yeah they are it's if I hadn't had to understand the code, they would be hilarious. Hmm. But now I have to understand the code and need all the tools and resources I can get. And now it gets frustrating instead. So, yeah. I can recognize that. Uh, that's a challenge with comments in general. But yeah, I think I think code review... I think it's good as a teaching tool, but I'm not convinced of it as a quality assurance tool at all. So, but what if you had, uh, have you ever told someone, add more tests? (laughs) We need more tests in this uh, pull request. Or what's your, how, how do you, can you, can you like layer a process on top of the code review to make it more powerful for quality assurance i guess you could um like telling someone we need more tests yeah sure i you can definitely find and identify problems in code review but it hasn't been very powerful in that way for me got it uh, and from what I've read on the subject, mostly basing this on the Accelerate book, which I think is an interesting take on trying to actually measure what impact different practices have in software development. Interesting. And yeah, it's a, it's an interesting book and it pushes hard in the DevOps sort of space. Um, okay. 
so what they they said about like uh, having checks between uh, between releasing code and like trying to quality assure by by basically gating uh, what code gets merged yeah um, was that it didn't have a significant uh, impact on uh, quality or defects huh and that sort of since i don't since i don't really like code reviews as a forced rule uh, that that sort of gives me a, a clean slate to say no uh, they don't work so uh, we shouldn't be doing them interesting i have in the back of my head a a i know that google had a paper about code reviews and why they do them Hmm. but this was at least 10 years ago Uh, so i don't remember anything more than yeah i believe this accelerate book is also fairly um fairly google inspired i believe interesting so it it sort of um, dovetails with a bunch of their and their measures for for the health of software projects or or software development stuff um so maybe things have happened in the last 10 years <laughs> it might. There, there could also be reasons why they're like yeah we we know these parts don't contribute uh but we do code reviews anyway because of for example knowledge transfer yeah i think it's it is helpful there or when you're onboarding someone new and they are making their first contributions it's reassuring that someone will look them over for the person oh, contributing. Yes. yes. Uh, so I think they can have value in that sense uh, much more than they they have in in protecting against uh, faults and defects. Because in my experience, or or like I I guess my gut feeling for for this is. When you say, no, a senior person has to review this code before it can go out, that's rooted in fear. Yeah. Like, it's a reactive, or technically it's proactive, but I I think it's a a sort of distrust of uh, people doing doing well, people doing the right thing, people uh, doing proper work. And... To some extent, it also um, they aren't required to put in good work because if you know that there's a testing process, suddenly you're slightly off the hook. Well, that should have been found in a code review, shouldn't it? Yeah. That should have been found in QA testing. Yep. That should have been found in. That should have been found in. It's like, yeah, but did you think it through? Uh, sure, I guess. Like. Did you actually consider what happens when this goes to production? Yeah. And then I think if you remove things like code reviews, there's a chance that testing suddenly starts making sense, like writing tests. (laughs) That's a hot take. (laughs) Well, making sense for the motivation of individual developers is what I'm saying. Oh, okay, got it. I thought you meant meant universally, objectively. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, I'll go with that too. I'll take those. Ah, very good. Um, No, but 
for a long time, I was just not writing tests because I didn't have any habit of writing tests. And uh, yep. uh, <laughs> I mostly worked on on websites and CMSs where everyone everything was either working fine or constantly on fire. And that was the normal. Um, and like tests weren't really a thing in in like web agencies don't generally write tests <laughs> fair enough <laughs> so so that didn't really give me a test driven habit and i'm i don't think i'd call myself a test driven developer at this point but i tend to write up at least a few big uh, bang for buck tests like where i think okay this will tell me whether this works or not. This will tell me whether it fails in the way I think it should fail or not. And it will catch if someone screws up the important bits here. Yeah. Uh, and that's generally the tests uh, that, I, that I prefer to write. And when I'm uncertain about how something might behave in production... And I've come to the realization that, okay, there, like, if I write this code, it's complex enough that no one reviewing it will actually grasp it fully. Or they might, generally people don't have the entire time of developing it to review it. So they won't review it in the depth that you've developed it. Indeed. So they will end up making a best effort review and if you know that that's the case you can actually feel like okay basically my code will pass review if it if it passes the smell check and then it will run in production what am i concerned about in production and in general i i think this is just uh I think it's just the idea of like owner taking ownership. And I think it's harder to take ownership when you are not allowed to own things. Yeah. Like, no, this has to go through seniors. This has to go through this process. You lose ownership at that point. Yep. You might not ev ever actually grab ownership of the thing. Uh, because you, you know it doesn't really matter. You can just go through a few cycles of the review or uh, throw something together and see if it passes QA or not. Yeah, and then pass blame if something goes wrong, if everything passes. Yeah, the blame is, uh, is distributed at that point. Yep. Let it crash. It's just averaged out across... It's like... <laughs> it sort of goes straight hand in hand with my my skepticism of large organizations it's like i'm not super keen on large <laughs> organizations because people can't properly take ownership people if there is a guiding idea or or a big like maybe the head honcho really really cares about some particular thing but the bigger the organization gets the more like uh, diluted that gets and the more layers of indirection yep. it passes through before going to the people that are supposed to be doing the work in that image yep and suddenly you don't like you lose the whole idea 
the whole feeling. Yeah, sooner or later. Yeah. Uh, it's um, viskleken. It has an English name. Oh, yeah, a telephone. Yeah. Game of telephone. Indeed. Uh, I was... Or trickle-down economics is another metaphor for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where the hell did it go? <laughs> Still thirsty here. Indeed. <laughs> let's let's turn this uh, on its head. Because I think processes, when they are good, are really good. Yeah. But one of the processes you need to put in place is to remove processes. Oh, yeah. I like that. Or at least review. No, remove processes. Uh, see which processes don't spark joy anymore and throw them away. Uh, and when I, I'm very fascinated by airplane crashes. Okay, yeah. Not because of lots of people dying and so on. It's No, it's rather I'm very fascinated that not all planes crash all the time. Yeah. Because they are huge systems and they are basically a billion dollar flying sun spark workstation. <laughs> Many of them. And they shouldn't really be able to fly like that shouldn't be able to to keep moving people around the way they are but yet they are that so when a plane crashes you can start to see where where these systems fail and generally we i think what makes sure that planes don't crash are processes, systems, checklists, and so on. And that usually means that we can't blame single persons uh, or single individuals when a plane crash. Yeah. Because so many other things have gone wrong. Uh, and that implies... Yeah, that there, there are multiple failures that have to occur uh, for yeah. this to happen. I I just heard that planes planes aren't smart enough to know that they can't fly and that's that's oh. why they fly nice or what's that bumblebee i've heard nah that's planes <laughs> or at least yeah. planes yeah. too i'm pretty sure it's planes <laughs> i've heard that the cartilage someday i will be able to pronounce that word cartilage yeah exactly uh that connects the wings to the body of the aircraft is very much has more exciting properties than we first thought so this is why they can fly though they don't know why but this leads to the question uh, on can you combine your idea of ownership with a really safe and nice system where it's hard to make the wrong or to make a catastrophic okay english today works well to make a catastrophically wrong decision yeah uh, i get the feeling that if with airplanes you could replace all the manual checklists with absolutely 
uh, reliable automated ones, they would. Yep. Oh, yes. Or no. Because legislation. Yeah, okay. If they could, they would, but they can't and they won't be allowed to. Okay, fair enough. But yeah. Um, so what I'm thinking there is what you have for your pre-flight checklists and your sanity checks and uh, someone actually checking that um, that we put some gas in this thing and all of those things yeah. is probably what your CI should be doing. Yeah. In my in my estimate. And like if you have a CI CD pipeline, and I think CD is I think more people talk about CD than actually do CD because I like whenever I dig into CD, I just find out that the people that are talking about actually doing it are using Kubernetes and not everyone can be using Kubernetes because it doesn't, it's too big. Uh, Yeah. So you're not speaking about the compact disks. No, continuous delivery. (laughs) Okay. Sometimes called continuous deployment, but I think the the correctest term is continuous delivery, which is this idea that uh, once something has been pushed to like merged, if if it passes all checks, it should basically be delivered. And sometimes people discuss what delivered means, I think. Uh, And I could see a lot of orgs like draw a line at okay it will be delivered to staging a staging environment because we don't dare oh yeah uh connect it straight to prod yeah but if you actually have the correct pre-flight checks and sanity checks like maybe it does go out to stage and maybe then there are some end-to-end tests that are performed to make sure that everything's as it should and maybe your test suite is good enough then maybe you can just hook it up to push to production. I know that some of the companies that are said to like have the best results and outcomes in software development supposedly use continuous delivery and push to production multiple times a day. Nice. I don't know if that means that the process is automated end to end, but there can't be a lot of a lot of ticking boxes along the way if you want to push to production multiple times a day. Indeed. You have to have rolling releases and you have to have uh, blue-green deploys or something like that. Yeah. Your system needs to be um, to, to be set up for, for basically going from uh, merge to deploy pretty much automatically. Yeah. And I think I think like your CI/CD setup it's your is basically your checklist or should be your checklist unless you have a system which absolutely cannot be automated in that fashion i'm sure there are tons of asterisks in that regard (laughs) Um, and i know a lot of like most companies i've worked with would be like no we don't we can't do that like why okay we're worried that our customers will lose confidence because we ship things that break okay why do they break and like if you start working backwards from that i think you can actually find out like okay we need more confidence built into the process we need we need to know that if we're we built it this way it won't actually 
break. Maybe we need to have a staging environment where migrations are done and all that. Yeah. So, so and taking us way off topic. You were talking about garbage collecting processes. <laughs> <laughs> Just out of curiosity, in these companies that didn't want the continuous delivery, did things ever break using the process they used? Oh, for sure. <laughs> like uh, just yeah. checking. Like <laughs> manual regression testing for some reason does not catch all problems. Um strange, right? Some some problems only show up at scale. Yeah. And I think the idea with like continuous delivery is that if you screw up, you tend to not roll back but roll forward ideally. Yeah. Like fix the thing, keep it moving forward because rolling back causes uh, tends to cause problems as well yeah rolling forward seems more intuitive and like what we do anyway so yeah it's it's fascinating but so did i catch you right in the in thinking about cleaning up process like in that there should be there should be basically uh, uh the process the organization process equivalent of a cron job that kills any process that isn't used or is not contributing yeah definitely processes that aren't used they don't matter that much because they aren't used (laughs) but there's someone really really pissed about their process not being used (laughs) (laughs) they could be taking up space in confluence or your documentation place of choice um but it doesn't really matter. It isn't like one of those processes you do like a ritual, but don't know why you do. Yeah. Uh, they are more harmful. Um, so, yeah. Maybe like the ones done at the place that didn't want continuous delivery. I don't know. Yeah, so I think most companies I've worked with have at least been clear that they don't feel like they're ready for for that or they don't want to move in that direction because like oh we've had so many quality issues like okay but if you have yeah. automatic shipping to production that act- will actually affect how people work yep like smaller changes changes that aren't that dangerous piece by piece you make you make small changes and if you can if you can achieve small changes, you've you've achieved so much. Oh yes, because they are usually easier to combine too. So, I was thinking about this. I want to pop the stack, uh, and I was thinking about this. Best of luck. <laughs> uh, ownership thing, and uh, uh, airplanes, uh, and it's was it your your point that. If we have a proper pre-flight check, we can let people take ownership and we still we still can have a good system or have I <laughs> misunderstood you completely? Yeah, so I think if we're going with the with the idea that all the checklists and all the like these things have to be done every single time if we miss one of them there's a risk of uh, like if we're miss if we miss multiple of them but any given one could be be part of that um 
we might miss something critical and that could be very dangerous. Like, yeah. If we assume that those are generally what, what we in software development tend to automate, and I think I'm making a large assumption here, but... Those are nice. Um, then, yeah, it's it's not necessarily like you... I, I think the pilot, for example, has a decent sense of ownership. Uh, they They know what their job is. They are the ones doing it. They have they have a co-pilot because that's a a good practice in these in these circumstances. Maybe they're pairing. Uh, yeah, redundancy is good. But it's not like there's someone uh, continuously uh, checking that the pilot is doing its their job. Uh, as far as I know, like oh. Maybe the co-pilot. Maybe maybe that's a code review. Maybe that's pairing. I'm not sure. Interesting. Hmm. I th- I'm not sure of what the analogy here. And I I think there's. I'm not sure how much creativity and like uh, inventiveness uh, and autonomy you have flying an airplane. So I'm not sure the analogy holds. Yeah, I don't think you have any of those until things go to shit. Yeah, and I think the at that point the pilot has a lot of autonomy. Yeah. And generally developers have tons of autonomy when it comes to fixing something that's on fire. Yeah. Uh, then we suddenly trust them to push all the code they want to production. Damn the reviews, we need to fix this. <laughs> turn off ci turn off ci <laughs> yeah or or just like we backdoor it or whatever yeah <laughs> can't you just live code this on production so the thing i i think is when process gets heavy i know for at least for me i check out of the work yeah uh, i get unenthusiastic about the work um and it's not just like i don't think it's just laziness it's it's that i don't actually feel like i'm the one making these decisions if every decision needs to be checked in triplicate and um and signed in and i guess if if i was working on like space shuttles or something i would probably be grateful to have uh, code review formally signed in triplicate yes <laughs> but it doesn't always help no no that doesn't always help but <clears throat> but the idea that like okay what we're doing here is extremely sensitive extremely formal engineering yeah that's a different matter than what most software development is indeed it's sort it's sort of like the the philosophies of of like yeah Erlang's famous uh let it crash philosophy uh that's much misunderstood uh but and it stands for a generally good idea in that you shouldn't attempt to catch every error because there are errors that are just uh going to happen their errors are going to happen yep. because your hardware is imperfect the 
the world surrounding you is imperfect. Memory is imperfect. Um, CPUs can screw up. Yeah. Uh, like maybe you accidentally row hammered your memory and now it flipped a bit. Like, should you do error checking on your memory continuously? In like, let's write a C program <laughs> from our higher level system and just make sure that we're not screwing up memory at any point. Some do, but it's, well, it's usually like gen generally speaking, hopefully you have error correcting memory. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about that. It's implemented in hardware. So. Yeah, sometimes not in consumers, not in consumer gear. Indeed. Uh, which uh, Linus Torvalds is apparently very upset about. Uh, yeah. Has a point. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but there are always things that can fail. And yep. I think like the first time I was going to write a simple application in Android, <clears throat> Java, <laughs> I was really, really annoyed that Java wanted me to enumerate and handle every exception that it could potentially throw for an, a given operation. Now, that's an interesting, like, heavy-handed process. Yeah, and it, it might just be that I don't know know some very conventional approach here that, that would have easily solved it. But uh, I'm pretty sure that's, that's the idea. Like, yeah, that's the idea. You should handle all errors that this could, pos could throw. Yep. Uh, I think what I ended up doing was <clears throat> handling... Uh, a slightly higher abstraction of error and just basically saying uh, ignore it uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> because i was just trying to get it to play an audio file so you you caught the base error class object something yeah in python it would have been uh, been like a catch pass or something yeah try accept <laughs> yeah, yeah try accept pass um but quality code yeah perfect <laughs> but it's like maybe i would have wanted to handle that the file didn't exist yeah and that the file was in an invalid format because this is information i could give to my user <clears throat> but maybe all yes. other errors are something i could just give a generic error because this is screwy and shouldn't happen yeah and it's also program ending if they happen, something really bad has happened and just restarting the program is probably the best way to handle this. Um, yeah. And was, yeah. sort of that's the general idea of let it crash. It's not that, oh, crashes are great, but it's like <laughs> crashes will happen. They will. So build a system that can handle crashes. Yep. So, for instance, if the pilot falls asleep, you have a co-pilot. Exactly. It won't be able to handle all uh, failures. Like, if both pilots have been shot, or uh, if the cockpit implodes and, uh, and they are uh, sucked out... Um, Into space, the final frontier. Yeah, exactly. Then you've probably done flying in the wrong place, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah if that ends up happening like both both pilots are taken out of commission yep then you don't have a pilot 
but you could always try to push this problem one step further it's like but then we let's have three pilots it's like <laughs> okay but it can still fail in the exact same way yes it's just you might have uh, lessened the risk of that happening yeah so to bring this back to code review yeah i've been one of the refactorings i've been doing uh on my current uh job or assignment or yeah. the thing that consultants have uh, with a client uh is to make all the programs angrier because they had quite a lot of silenced exceptions uh-huh. uh, and silenced exceptions are i think is an objectively bad thing um I hope that you agree. Otherwise, we will have to discuss this. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah, if you, if you mean by by silenced exceptions, mean that they are caught and nothing is logged that they ever occurred. Yeah. Yeah. Try except pass. Yeah, and uh, some asterisks on that around like there are errors that are like exceptions that are except expected, which like exceptions. I guess. Uh, <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish expectations. Yeah, for example, code that's like, oh, we expect that this uh, module will exist. We will try importing it. We know that it might not be installed. And in that case, we use another one. Yeah. That would be a try, try catch import error, for example. Yeah. And there's no reason why that should log that there was an import error if, if there is a rescue path. Those are cool. Uh, I'm I'm totally cool with them. Yeah, uh, but so what I'm what I'm guessing you're saying here is like even if you don't want the exception to crash anything, you still want to log exception. I believe you can do log dot exception. Yeah, exactly. And the nice thing with that is that you get the traceback. Yeah. So for a new developer like me uh, on this project. Uh, I can look at the exception and see, okay, so this line in this module is what makes everything go boom. And then I can start work from there. But if there is a thing that silences this exception or just logs exception occurred, then but doesn't log the exception, yeah. then I have nothing to go on. Uh, exception occurred is a bit better because I can grep that. Yeah, and seeing which file that is, and then restore, just remove the try except thing. Uh, so yeah, so I think I might need to nuance the objectively bad thing, and say it depends. So now I can keep being a software consultant. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it depends. Stroke beard. Yeah. Stroke beard. Yeah. <laughs> so so but I one thing that fascinates me now uh, is that nobody reacted. Nobody doing the code review reacted that maybe you shouldn't silence that uh, exception. Maybe you should let it go boom in a very noisy way uh, to make the next developer happy. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe if they had a checklist and actually used it, I don't know. Uh, I really have a hard time seeing how to apply checklists to 
to development. I know that they can work for, for deploying things, for example, if you haven't automated enough. Yeah. But at the point where you have a very reliable checklist, you could probably implement that in Bash. Yes. Or Python if it's too long. Yeah. Or any other nice language. Yeah. It also depends on what you're working with. Some systems are very hard to automate uh, and like interacting with the actual application for example might be difficult uh, in a reasonable way but ge but yeah. generally yes uh, you should just be automating um, but i i don't think like in a code review have they used this have they used that what i would say there is uh, are there good opinionated um like stylistic linters or whatever you want to call them like um sort of best practice linters i know elixir has one named credo which oh. i think is is very reasonable cool. it does some things i find annoying uh but it it's generally generally good yeah uh and it will tell you things like you don't need to use the pipe operator here because you are not building a pipeline you are calling a function once <laughs> <laughs> yes yes but i wanted to make pipes i might i might want to pipe further later <laughs> they are fun yes <laughs> change that then what i would want yeah. credo to do when since it's already complaining about my code is just fix it <laughs> yes but but that's a little bit tricky to get right i think i don't think I it supports think, fixing it i think rust has a linter that actually fixes things but i'm not 100 percent sure um Haskell has a very nice linter called agelint that is, it might not give you the best advice all the time, but it always gives you very artistic and pleasant advice. <laughs> that was unexpected. That was not where I thought that was going. I, I started <laughs> thinking about elixirs like dialyzer, which is a static analysis tool, which... yeah um let's see it's i don't remember if they call it an optimistic or pessimistic one but uh, what it does is if it says that there's a problem there's a problem in the sense that uh, there's something dialyzer uh, found to be uh, uh found to be wrong it might never trigger an error but you've probably written an error. Ah, got it. While it can absolutely miss things because it doesn't give, it shouldn't give uh, false positives. Yeah. It's like MyPy yeah. in Python. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but I haven't tried. MyPy is, is uh, I need to use it more before I, before I give a <laughs> proper verdict, but yeah. uh, it has been a pleasure so far. Yeah, Dialyzer's only issue is that it takes a really long time to build the um, the data it requires to to perform the analysis especially the first time so uh, okay it's incredibly inconvenient to use sometimes especially for large code bases yeah it does not huh. like it when you change a lot of files at once <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh you're bringing my laptop to to its knees because i checked out the old branch damn it oh no yeah <laughs> and now it started melting 
that's actually an interesting thing with working with Elixir, and this is way off topic, but uh, Elixir LS, which is the language server for Elixir, yep, uh, which uh, backs the like uh, integration for um, VS Code and stuff. Uh, yep. It has some a bunch of bunch of nice tools, and because it's written in Elixir, it's very good at doing multi-core. <laughs> so when uh, when it hits your when it hits its stride and really processes something, usually dialyzer, um, yep. it uses every core you have and it will <laughs> utilize them fully, <laughs> which means your machine almost stops. Uh, I actually ended up diving into like an issue about that um, in their issues and investigating like, okay, okay, so there's some way I can configure this to not actually run a scheduler per core <laughs> uh, and then i track that down and i think they've since released an update where where it will default to not like sparing two cores or something if you have oh, that's nice. if you have more than two because yeah. it, it gets painful when your entire machine just freezes <laughs> but it is of course ideal if you're if it's a server and like um, the beam is the only application running yes because it will utilize it fully yeah and you, and you yeah. can of course also configure it to spare a core if if you feel like the like some operating system process or some other process uh, needs to have a standing fighting chance that's a good thing <laughs> yeah but yeah. yeah code reviews not sure i not sure i believe in them fully i i think they're useful i think they're I think they're useful, especially as a learning tool, like onboarding and uh, helping people learn the ropes. Yeah, and making a team um, code in the same way, maybe. Yeah, and for sort of enforcing culture. Yeah, I yeah. guess I guess that I would say that's that's part of what you get when onboarding people in that way. I would also recommend that if people actually want to do really good onboarding like code review can be part of that but i think pairing is vastly superior it seems so i like if you pair with a new hire at least two hours a day like it doesn't have to be the same developer doing the pairing every time but i think you will get them up to speed so much faster just because there's so much institutional knowledge in any place yeah where it's just like okay i need to we need to get this done like okay let's let's work on your environment new guy so uh so we know that you can do everything that you're supposed to be able to do and then it's like oh we yeah so we're investigating this bug okay it seems to have something to do with this now we need to reproduce okay i need to log in right we haven't set you up with credentials let's <laughs> you will find so many of these issues if you just yes. make sure that the person doesn't have to like isn't working through their first uh, few features or issues on their own yeah because someone like they might figure it out they might resolve it i i tend to be very autonomous when i i get started with a new client it's like yeah i take the code base and then i run with it as far as i possibly can i'll shoot some notes to to whoever i have if i get stuck or 
if I if I experience too much friction, I'll I'll shoot a message and then keep trying. But whenever, like, if these people were with me when I was getting started, they would be like, "Oh, oh, you'll need this, and then you'll need this. Oh, and you'll need this." Instead of me needing to figure it out and then asking for it. Yeah. So that sounds like an onboarding checklist, but in real time. Yeah, and and like a checklist can get some of the stuff, but other things like explaining how your workflow uh, tends to go for like releases and stuff. This was very relevant with my recent client. Yeah, just because they they had a way of doing releases that I hadn't seen before. Um, just just in how it was generally done and that varies a lot by company oh yes what's your what's your current thinking on code reviews after all this i'm hmm i think they have their place but i haven't seen them being used in very good in very effective ways when it comes to quality assurance so I think I'm with you there. They are good for communication. They are also useful as a, a way to show ideas and to um, just get feedback on how, how can we do this better um, and so on. Yeah. Uh, and... Yeah, so it's. <laughs> I think I'm. I'm. Um, and also, oh, they allow the developer to pass blame. Lovely. Oh yeah. It's not my fault anymore, and now I can see. Yeah. So so the ownership thing goes in two directions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and and I can also see what I, what I can get away with. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've been doing some code reviews of my code and you've said things like, well, maybe you shouldn't use partial there. <laughs> maybe that function isn't what you need, really. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was good feedback. Yeah. So what you're saying is uh, if you want to avoid ownership, making sure that you get code reviews is a very good thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and just pass the blame. <laughs> Actually, this sort, sort of adds up because I find code reviews useful for learning. And people that are learning should not be held to the highest level of responsibility. People that are less experienced should... I think they should have some... Um, uh, I think they should feel some ownership of what they're doing, but generally they will be so busy picking things up, figuring things out and learning and just helping build things that having them be responsible for bigger picture things might not be the best idea. Um, or maybe they should have that because it's also this thing where I think discomfort and like taking ownership is generally speaking a bit uncomfortable yeah and but i think it motivates i think you learn more when you are responsible when you are 
pushed a little bit into like out of your comfort zone and slightly into discomfort yep uh, and it's a fairly nice way of pu- pushing someone into into mild discomfort to say like okay you're responsible for this we trust you to do this yeah or- tell us if there's a problem tell us if you need anything or you could push them into paralysis. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, so. <laughs> I I think that's that's sort of why. Well, generally, when I've worked with uh, more junior folks, I have tended to code review their stuff because they shouldn't be f- feel like they should know all of this. I want them to be able to say, "Okay, I'm sending this to Lars, and he's uh, looking at it." making sure it's okay, uh, giving me feedback, like working through that. I don't think you can fully demand that type of ownership from someone who doesn't necessarily know enough to take that ownership, doesn't know it enough to know what it would mean to do that. Yeah. Like if you don't have a decent picture of the consequences of your choices, you can't fully take ownership no that's true it's and things can go really really bad and then it's not just discomfort but pain and pain isn't very good no i i think you learn well from from leaning into discomfort but i don't think you learn very well from pain uh like actually uh one more circle around the block (laughs) i think that's what makes people institute hard rules on pull requests and code reviews like okay we need this much approval for passing something through because we've been burnt before yep. we want to catch the next one but that's not i don't think that's how that works i don't think that was that's what you do i think what you do is um institute a culture of uh, like carefulness in the sense of uh afraid to be burnt again yep fear yeah it it has basically it has a chilling effect where where you are less likely uh to push forward because because it's more important not to screw up than it is to do things yeah (laughs) been there done that (laughs) 